Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. On today's episode, I'd like to welcome Kostaj. He's a senior director, head of insights at Medallia Market Research at Medallia. In addition to serving some of the biggest brands across restaurant, retail, CPG, and other industries, Andrew has also hosted over 100 webinars on industry trends. His analysis commentary has been featured in publications like the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, NPR, Forbes, Fortune, Business Insider, Franchise Times, NRN, QSR Magazine, the Data Standard Podcast, and many others. And I really want to welcome Andrew. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Welcome, Andrew. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. I want to jump right in. You know, we're always into aha moments here on this podcast. And I'm curious, what are the key aha moments that have brought you to the point that you are in your remarkable career journey? Oh, wow. Um, Well, to me, I think probably a common theme throughout my professional career and even before that is that I love numbers and I love data. So I, to me, the things that have really been aha oriented have always been in one way or another, some sort of data point or, or finding that I think has helped change either my or, or somebody else's decision. Um, and yeah, even going back to earlier in, in my career before my current role, I, I worked for a bunch of years at Accenture doing management consulting and uh, just the use of data to help clients change the way they're thinking about launching a new initiative or whether something should be a priority or not, I think is it's always nice when when that leads to some sort of aha for for us or our clients. Can you give an example of an early aha moment you had with data and analysis? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, a lot of the work that I used to do uh, prior to my current role with Medallia was oriented around marketing strategy and in particular uh, loyalty programs for for retailers and restaurants and things like that and um, I, there's definitely been some times for me where I uh, an aha moment has oriented around helping a brand realize that just because something is widely utilized that doesn't mean it's adding incremental profit to a business so let's say there's a marketing program that had, you know, 10 million redemptions, somebody might right off the bat think that means it was widely successful. That means it was great for our brand. If that many people redeemed this coupon or this offer, that's fantastic. Well, it might be fantastic according to some measurements, but it certainly had a few aha moments of helping clients understand the real thing you need to be measuring is incrementality and, and how much did your initiative drive results that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You've always got to compare things to a baseline if you're trying to measure the effectiveness of something that you did, right? Um, So helping them understand, for instance, a loyalty program, just because it's got X million members or um, the X million people have redeemed loyalty points for a free product in the past, that doesn't mean that those people wouldn't have been your customers anyway, or even that the loyalty program necessarily changed their behavior at all. 
Uh, we've definitely had some times where uh, I've had information that it's helped a client understand how effective a program is. Um, but just that way of thinking of you've got to look beyond just how widely utilized something is. You've got to look at how did it actually change behavior versus what would have happened anyway. Um, to me, I think it has been a, a huge aha that's led to better decision making. I think you bring up an excellent point. I think what you're talking about is you're trying to get to a deeper level and to understand the triggers and motivators. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it, it's to see, like, especially when you look at marketing programs, like offers, promotions, discounts, it, it's it's like you said, it's looking at did that motivate behavior that wouldn't have happened otherwise? Because if you if you run something and the only people that use it are people that would have been your customers anyway, all you're basically doing is leaving money on the table. You're giving them something that they would have paid more for. Uh, and and I think there are a lot of programs that are run in the market without the proper analysis that help you understand that and keep the programs that work and maybe discontinue the ones that aren't working or they aren't worth the cost. You know, I think that brings an interesting point because in today's world, we're dealing with lots of data that we're getting more than we ever could and lots of KPIs. And so there's the quantitative data, but there's also qualitative. And I'm curious, how have you learned to strike the balance between the two so you can address what you, you are just talking about right now? Uh, yeah, you know, that's a really fascinating topic. And and one of the things that here at Medallia Market Research and, and formerly the company that I was a part of that was acquired by Medallia, a company called Sense360, is we've been very passionate about bringing to the market ways of using quantitative data um, and especially behavioral data for things that historically have been based off of just survey-based responses, whether it's quantitative answers or qualitative. And, and we do all of those types of survey uh, projects as well, by trying to strike a balance of using the bigger data that's now available to us and, and some of the interesting research panels that haven't existed up until a few years ago, I think has been a very powerful way to, to understand what's going on in the market in ways that you wouldn't know just by surveying people. Um, and I guess like to give you an example, if if you ask the average person how often they go to the gym and you also ask them how often they eat fast food, you might find that people would tell you they go to the gym far more often than they ever eat fast food, Right. I would guess if you ask the average person, that's at least the story they want to tell you. And that might be the way they'd answer a survey. Uh, but when you use behavioral data like smartphone foot traffic or credit card and debit card spending or other things that, you know, historically those data sets haven't been available to the insights world, we can now see that maybe some people conveniently misremember some of the things that they answer in surveys. And, and there's a lot of use cases around customer frequency and market share and, and things like that, that are just, they need to be more precise and they need to have more honesty and objectiveness behind them to, to create quality data that can be used to land on quality insights. So I'm curious when you're doing that, in the example, you're getting a survey done, and you're getting information, uh, if not their personal information, but at least demographic information related to that data. But then when you're getting this information on what they've done based on their iPhone metrics and stuff, that's anonymous. So how do you know which party you're really researching on when you combine that? It depends on what we're trying to do. So one of the things about us with our data sets is we 100% are very committed to privacy protection. So 
everything we collect, it is like you mentioned for, for the data sets that we use, it's at the device level. It's not tied back to anything that's personally identifiable to a person. We can, in cases where somebody traveled via their smartphone to a certain brand and we want to survey them and ask them questions about that brand that they just visited, we can also ask them demographic questions uh, that could help us create a, a profile of who a brand's customers are. But all of the insights that we generate are going to be aggregate based on you know collecting data on a whole panel of people. It's never going to be here is the demographic info or any personal info of one person tied back to the behavior of, of that one person. Um, the, we actually don't collect any personally identifiable information like name, phone number, whatever it is about any of our panelists. So I think you do get a lot of data these days that tell you people's actual behavior, what they might tell you they'd like to do or wish to do. I'm curious, how do you then, once you get this data, how do you still get at what are the motivators or triggers that are driving that behavior? Yeah, so uh, the, fortunately for us, a lot of our work allows us to use not just those behavioral insights, but we can customize survey questions that we ask panelists after seeing their behavior. So let's say an example might be if somebody went to Walmart, we can see based on the smartphone tracking that they went to Walmart, we can send them a survey and ask questions about why you chose Walmart as opposed to Target or Costco or you, you know Best Buy, you name it, um, and ask them broader questions too of not just what they've done and why they did it in the past, but it can be, you know, what's your opinion on this? What do you think you're going to do differently in the future? What are these different? Here, here's a bunch of different concepts for different products. Which one would you be most likely to buy? Um, all of those types of traditional research needs to understand sentiments and perceptions. That's all stuff we can do. The great thing for us is just we know the people that we're asking the question to is somebody that truly was a customer and they went there as opposed to just saying that they're a customer. Right, right. So I think uh, I understand how you had a passion early on to, uh, in your work for data and analysis. I'm curious now, tell me about your current role as well as what uh, brought you to the doorstep of focusing on food and beverage and some of the things you've done in that area recently. Well, I love food personally. Uh, <laughs> and um, compared to some of the industries that maybe based on experience consulting, I could have learned more about and maybe moved into um, stuff like financial services or pharmaceuticals or, you know, you name it. Um, definitely just not as much passion for me personally in those areas. It's hard for me to relate to the ins and outs of those industries as much as something like food that, you know, I, like most people consume two to three meals a day. I, I like what I eat. I, I like to cook. Um, and I think from an analysis or a more consultative perspective, I think the restaurant industry is one that is so unique and interesting because it is one of the only industries that such a vast majority of people in society interact with at all and interact with as often as they do. It's virtually every day or, you know, you might find a sizable percent of the population eats at least one meal a day from a restaurant. Uh, so for me, yeah, food and beverage from a professional standpoint has been interesting. And, and you know, but with our work with uh, with the companies that the uh, Medallion Market Research supports, it certainly goes beyond food and beverage. Uh, our origins as as Sense 360 before we were acquired by Medallia was primarily food and beverage, but we as a company go beyond that. My passion, though, I would say probably still does 
lead to food and beverage the most. Um, and, and yeah, it lends itself well to big data because of the, the things that I mentioned beforehand too. You've got a very large group of people that use this industry in one form or another. You've got them using it frequently. From a smartphone perspective, uh, you've got tens of thousands of restaurants, even when we're talking only about big chain restaurants, you've got even, you know, 100,000 plus when we talk independence. Um, there's a lot of different data points to collect. And uh, that's what I think makes it so interesting from an analysis perspective. Mm-hmm. Are you finding it easier or more challenging to get industry data and insights today? Uh, there are things that make it more challenging, but I would say also more insightful, be, probably because COVID really transformed consumer behavior more. And I'm not the only one that's ever said this, obviously. I'm, I'm sure a million people have said it beforehand, but like the, the dramatic change from COVID in terms of consumer behavior is unlike anything we've ever seen this fast in, in any, you know, recent generation. Uh, so, there are some things that do make it challenging. Uh, you know, in the early days of COVID, I think there was a lot of legacy ways of monitoring our panel that were no longer relevant. So, like, for instance, you want to know that the panelists that you track are active and they don't have like a new smartphone that for some reason we're not picking up anymore. And we see their old one is sitting idle and therefore we shouldn't use them in metrics because they're not an active panelist. Well, what happens when everybody's sitting at home now? How do you know who's an active panelist when when everybody was sheltering at home for months? Um, in order to have those controls and measurements, we had to get creative and and really study our own panel better to to understand how to generate usable metrics going forward. Um, not necessarily for us, but I know I'm sure there's a lot of other research and insights professionals who had legacy trackers that were survey based that they were probably asking people every month or every quarter or something and let's say they ask a question which of the following stores have you visited in the past 30 days well before covid visited was usually a very close proxy to purchased from because it was it was very often that if somebody wanted to get something they were physically going to the store for it well, what happens now when overnight a very large percent of all of the business that a brand is getting is coming through online orders instead? You know, does the word visit in a survey mean the same thing that it used to? Maybe not. Uh, and adjusting that and and running a you know a massive data collection at, at scale to to change a question and make sure that it didn't alter everything else that legacy you're comparing it to. That's kind of a challenge as well that I think COVID brought about for the the research industry overall. Um, some of the things that I think are are cool though now about it is when we use things like credit card and debit card data and we look at digital purchasing. This has just been an area that's exploded, and it's very cool. and And a lot of brands are very hungry to have data about the rapid growth of things like third-party delivery platforms like DoorDash and Uber Eats and Instacart. And beforehand, when primarily the industry was seeing major players move up and down a few percent every year and no more, all of a sudden now we have the opportunity to study and analyze markets that have grown 200 to 500% over the past two years. And that's kind of a once in a generation opportunity to have. 
Sure. I mean, you brought up a couple of interesting things that I want to dive deeper into. Well, first of all, tell me some of the trends you were seeing prior to COVID and then how COVID has changed everything. And what are the top three things you're seeing now? Yeah. So I guess at least in terms of restaurants, certainly prior to COVID, the the earlier stages of third-party delivery was, was something that was on everybody's mind, but it was on everybody's mind because maybe there was a chance it was going to start to make up 1% of, of restaurant traffic or, or something like that. It was still far below that even, but I think people were at least interested in the rate of adoption. And, and the questions were more about, should I integrate this with my point of sale system at all? Or should I just stay out of third-party delivery? I'm not sure if it's profitable for me. And like, is it a market that's even going to last? There's also a lot around things like chicken as a new menu item. You might remember uh, like a few months before COVID began, there was a lot of craze about Popeye's having a chicken sandwich and lines out the door for days. And, you know, how, how could this be so successful? And uh, so things like that, I would I would say were were a lot of the burning topics for the restaurant industry. Also, a lot of just like consolidation to um, some of these bigger private equity backed players purchasing a lot of restaurant brands and figuring out ways to um, sort of unify the technology and and share best practices of customer experience and uh, save costs. All of those things I would say were were pretty big and and to a certain extent they all still exist now, but um, I I would say at least as far as what I've observed in the time since COVID is we expect, or, or I think we've become very um, fixated on headlines, or and I, I do think a lot of journalists that cover industries, whether it's restaurants or any, anything like that too, I do think a lot of them have gotten so used to having every headline be very attention grabbing about the world is changing forever and like, you know, this month compared to last month is a night and day difference. This is never going to be the same again. And like, you know, brands that are doing great today might be dead tomorrow. And all of this sensationalist narrative, I think, you know, it had a time and a place. And and at some parts of COVID, things really were changing rapidly. Uh, I would say that in recent months, we have seen things be more normal than for sure than 2020 and 2021. But there still is so much attention and, and craze about recession and inflation, all this kind of stuff. And it is a factor that's affecting the industry right now, without a doubt. And you know, we've seen a lot of data about how people rank price as a determining factor in where they're purchasing their food. And it's grown tremendously compared to where price used to be ranked as a factor, you know, even six months to a year ago. So all these things are true, but the actual effect on restaurant consumption, if you read only headlines about how inflation plus recession equals doomsday, uh, it's nowhere near the level of drastic swings that we were seeing at any point uh, during COVID. The, the, the way that brands are up or down today is not that far out of the range of how they would be up or down in any given year, even before COVID. It's not anything like the swings of some doing well and being up 100% during early COVID and then others being down 70 or 90%, depending on the type of restaurant you were. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple of trends that you've talked about that I want to talk to you. But first of all, it seems like more and more people are not just going out to eat because they want to eat or try. It's more of a social 
function than anything. Would you agree with everyone's busy lives being digitally connected throughout the day? It's the, you know, a couple of times in the day that we can actually interact in person and kind of uh, let loose and engage. And, and it's not just about a meal. It's about actually having social engagement. Have you seen that or is that true? Uh, yeah, I do think it's true. I wouldn't say it's the only explanation as to why restaurants have fared decently well over the course of 2022, even though, you know, you would think that eating at a restaurant is a nice to have and not a need to have. And if your purchasing power is down so much due to inflation, is that an area that you'd think you might cut back on? I think a lot of it, though, whether it's that social aspect of of this being the time to see people when, you know, you don't in an office anymore, if you're working from home or, or whatever it might be, I think that's certainly playing a role. I think also people have just kind of become addicted to the convenience element of it and don't have the the willpower to cook. And also, I when the price of groceries has gone up even faster than the price of restaurant food has... On a per meal basis, it still might be cheaper to eat groceries, but when you see how much your bill has gone up at the grocery store, I don't think anybody walks out of a grocery store these days and says, that was a good money saver for me. I'm glad I'm doing this instead of going to a restaurant. I think they think, whoa, this is really pricey now. And then the next time they need a meal, I think the the many compelling reasons around convenience and taste and whatever it might be, social, that is going to lead you to choose a restaurant it makes that decision to still eat at a restaurant that much easier. And, and I think that's a lot of the reasons why we haven't really seen the share of stomach between restaurants and groceries move at all during inflation. It's been pretty steady. Both are down a little bit in transaction volume and both are up a bit in spend per transaction, mainly because of pricing. But yeah, I mean, people kind of divide up their stomach between restaurant food and grocery food the same way that they have for a while now. I, I don't think inflation has changed that very much. Interesting. So you talked about third-party delivery, and it was you know gaining some foothold prior to COVID, but I think that changed tremendously during COVID, correct? And maybe you can talk about that, but also tell me how much of that change has been still sustained, or is it still changing? And if so, which way? Yeah, I, so the short answer is it seems like it's for the most part been sustained. Um, I wouldn't say that it's continuing to accelerate that much. It, it's essentially, from our data, about flat year over year. But compared to 2019 levels, we still see the total spend on that market up by in the ballpark of around 300 percent. And it's it's held even even compared to the heights of, of COVID when people had shelter in place orders in the U.S. And um, even in markets, especially like California and others, where the, the restrictions and the concern about COVID was so high, you would think this is a high moment for delivery, but it's never going to be this high again. It seems like it's it's basically held on to that for the most part. It's pretty surprising, right? But it's also pretty reflective of how how sticky it's become in in consumer decision making and sort of that addiction to that convenience. Well, I think it goes back to what you just talked about. Is it's about convenience. It's about even saving some money as well, right? When you have it delivered. And I'm curious, how much of that is, have you seen that increase uh, related to, let's say, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I'm assuming it's probably more dinner than anything, but are you actually seeing other parts of the day in terms of meal actually also increasing? I I don't have on me anything that suggests that other, other times of the day have grown more than lunch and dinner have, but late night and, and breakfast outside of lunch and dinner both do make up 
a non negligible part of the total day for delivery. Uh, I, I think breakfast probably still has some room to grow, but I think people are starting to, especially with the return to the office, I think people are starting to recognize that beverage-based occasion, like the morning coffee delivery as as an opportunity to use a platform. And I think that a lot of the breakfast-oriented brands have gotten smarter about their third-party partnership strategy uh, even ones like like Starbucks that that do so well with you ordering directly through their app and not going onto another platform, I think I think all of them are still recognizing that there's a presence and there's a value to have a place on on third party platforms. You just don't want to give up more business onto a third party platform than you have to because the margins are bad for restaurants to to let somebody order through a DoorDash if they could have ordered directly through you. Yeah. So tell me about ghost kitchens. One, can you define them? And also tell me, what do you think is going to be their impact on the industry currently as well as moving forward? So the terms ghost kitchen, virtual restaurant, uh, th- there are other terms that all surround this. They they technically all have different meanings, but at a high level, the the main idea around this is these are restaurants that the only way you can access them is through ordering delivery. There's no storefront or physical brick and mortar presence for you to go to and place an order in person or or sit down to eat in person. So there's different models around them. Uh, There are in some cases, a virtual concept is going to be a brand that you see on a delivery service when you're browsing for food. Uh, Like if you're on DoorDash, you might see Bubba's chicken wings or or a place like this. But what's really happening is even though that has its own brand and images and its own menu, and it seems like it's a restaurant, that is really a virtual restaurant that all of the orders are being fulfilled by using the kitchen of another established restaurant that has an actual brick and mortar presence. And, And in some cases, there are chains that have launched their own virtual concepts Um, So like, for instance, uh, the Meltdown or or, or Tender Shack, or these are these are places that you could find on a DoorDash or an Uber Eats, for instance, but they're really operating out of the kitchen of a restaurant like Denny's or Chili's or Outback Steakhouse or, or, or something like that. There are some other models to this, too, like you have just a warehouse or some sort of centralized food hall that is purely just churning out delivery orders and the delivery driver is going to go pick up from this place, but you wouldn't know it when you see the outside of the building, it'll look like some sort of industrial building or or something like that. But really what's going on is just there are kitchens set up to cook for 20 different restaurant concepts that you'd only find online. As far as them having a moment, I think it it is really exciting and it, it probably is more than just a temporary moment. One of the things that's really cool about it is one, the upfront setup is so much lower than opening a uh, restaurant brand that you need to have sp- your own space for your own kitchens, your own storefront, all that kind of stuff. Um, it- it's much lower barrier to entry to create something and then maybe partner with an existing restaurant. Um, or if you are a brand, let's say you're a brand that specializes in lunch and dinner items. We were, we were just talking about different times of the day beforehand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's say you're a brand that specializes in making burgers and hot dogs or pizza or something like that. 
you do great during lunch and dinner, but nobody really wants to eat that kind of food in the morning, let's say. Well, it would be very hard to convince people if your brand is uh, you know, Jimmy's pizza that you're also really good at making breakfast food or breakfast burritos or something like that. But what if you immediately created a virtual concept that is oriented around breakfast burritos? You're going to make them out of your kitchen, but a consumer when they're browsing on DoorDash or Uber Eats, if they see a place that's called you know, Burrito Central or something like that. I'm, I'm really bad at making up names. Of these sure, <laughs> if you see a place called Burrito Central, that's going to entice you uh, much more than the idea of eating breakfast or pizza would. So if you're a restaurant and you have idle capacity at certain times of the day, you can differentiate your product offering and you can very easily spin off different branding that's going to be more appealing to the consumer in the process. Um, so from utilization and all these things, it is it is really exciting. It's also really cool, I think, to just see brand extensions for celebrities and others as well. So like in here in the U.S., one of the best performing virtual concepts is one that's called Mr. Beast Burger. And it's oriented around uh, a YouTuber that goes by the name Mr. Beast. And he's one of the most successful YouTubers of all time. Humongous following. I don't know the exact count, but I think it's got to be in the hundreds of millions at this point. Um, but, you know, he's known for doing philanthropy videos and and interesting stunts and what, whatever it might be on his page. He has nothing to do with hamburgers, but people know him and love him. And, you know, why not use that brand and make an extension of yourself and launch a burger brand? And it, it's worked out very well for him. And there's been plenty of other celebrities that have done things like this too. Interesting. So what kind of margins are you seeing on these ghost kitchens or virtual kitchens versus let's say the traditional uh, avenue of uh, having a uh, location at a restaurant. Yeah, so I I don't have the best access to that data because you know we we follow the behavior of consumers, but it's kind of a blind spot for us to see the internal operational measures for a brand like their costs and everything else. My understanding of talking to other people in the industry is that the virtual concepts for sure have the potential to be profitable, and there are many of them that do. You do need to do better on volume because even though you don't have you're not you don't individually have all of the real estate cost and the labor cost you're you're sharing that in some form um the vast percent of your orders going through a platform like DoorDash they do take a very big commission on each order so it, it's a volume game if you have one that is going to sell a lot um do a lot of business every day then it seems like it can be a, a fascinating and and very profitable thing for a restaurant to add on to their uh, total offering, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily a sure thing. It's going to be profitable. You, you got to do it right. And from the consumer standpoint, how are they? I mean, a lot of times, do they even know it's a ghost kitchen? Or, I mean, how is it being received on the consumer end? Yeah, good question. This this for us is an area where we've done more research. Uh, what we've seen most recently is that we've gotten to the point where a little over half of Americans are familiar with the idea that ghost kitchens or virtual concepts exist. And then I think of that group, there's about one in five or so that say they know for a fact they've ordered from one. Um, we do see, though, when we ask people just who place any delivery order, we do see that there's a pretty sizable percent, maybe about 30 or 40 percent that... Um, are not aware of whether or not the place they ordered from has a physical presence or not, or if it's a, a virtual concept. So 
I think that the short answer is people have heard of the idea of this. There are some people that know enough about where they've ordered from to know that it, it is a virtual concept. Um, but you've got this big group of people that probably have ordered from one. They just don't know. They don't know either way. And um, it doesn't bother them, though, is the other finding that we've had. When we've asked them about the idea behind what a ghost kitchen or what a virtual concept is, generally people believe that the quality of the food is going to be roughly on par with a regular restaurant. They don't think like, you know, this is going to be some weird amateur version of the food that I like, or they're trying to cut costs or rip me off somewhere, or whatever it is. People generally think probably is, is as good as where I'm ordering anywhere else. I don't care that they don't have waiters and tables. Like if they can make the food, they can make the food. And my perception in a vacuum is that this is basically on par with a regular restaurant. That's the feedback that we see. Interesting. And how about in terms of pricing? It, it can really vary. I, I think one of the things that's certainly been true about this most recent year with inflation is that historically we are seeing that restaurants were much more sensitive about increasing their prices on delivery platforms when consumers would see, you know, hey, I know that a Big Mac is, doesn't cost as much on on uh, in real life as it does on DoorDash. So, you know, they're trying to rip me off or or whatever. It seems to be that whether we're talking about a virtual concept or we're talking about a regular brand that has a presence on a third-party platform, in all of these cases, I think that there's been generally consumer acceptance of price increases on these platforms. And I think generally it seems to be that the consumers understand or they're, they're at least not deterred from ordering by understanding that restaurants have margin hits and there's additional costs and they they kind of need to take price a little bit to make up for having a presence on that platform. And the consumer gets convenience in return. So it's a trade-off that people seem to be willing to make. Sure. So I'm curious, what are some trends you're seeing now? Maybe you can give us a little bit of peek as to what you think is going to be uh, coming down the road in the next uh, year or two in terms of you know food and beverage. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's some interesting things that we haven't seen yet, but just by talking to, you know, some some people in the industry, I think are probably going to be some of the bigger focuses soon. One of them is dynamic pricing. So you talked about pricing beforehand, uh, but this would be a much more sophisticated way that pricing can change rapidly based on how busy the restaurant is or, or how many people are placing orders. We've already had this in other industries for a very long time, right? Like you've, there's Uber surge pricing. Um, when you go to try and buy a concert ticket, I, I just dealt with this myself, buying concert tickets recently. You can see how rapidly things change when they first come available versus after the fact and then on StubHub. Uh, so I think that there, there's certainly consumer acceptance of dynamic pricing in other industries. It's been hard for restaurants to do it for... Uh, a variety of reasons in the past, but I think the technology and maybe the consumer comfort level is going to start to get there where we'll see it more often. The other thing that I'll admit I'm not an expert on, but I did just talk to somebody earlier today about it is um, this this world of the metaverse and Web3 and all of these experiences that restaurants are creating on digital platforms that uh, I know it sounds kind of uh, vague and abstract, but I, I think that probably over the next year or two, as consumers, we're going to start to understand what restaurants are intending and what they have in mind when they do things like uh, issue NFTs, the you know, collectors, items, and all these things, and how that's going to fit into a, a broader strategy of 
a way a brand is going to interact with its customers and how ownership of something like an NFT or interacting with the brand in the metaverse is going to give you certain privileges or access that uh, the brand will use to reach customers in ways that they are not doing yet. Um, so I, th I think it's all still being figured out, but probably I think one of the emerging areas over the next few years will be restaurants delving into this and, and figuring out what works for them. Very interesting. So tell me a little bit about, can you think of an example of dynamic pricing that someone has implemented and it's somewhat successful at this point? I haven't seen it really much yet for restaurants. I'm looking forward to seeing what, what comes myself. I would assume that it's going to work similar to how it works with Uber or, or something else. Um, I think probably the, the factor that you would most often see it is prices are probably going to be lower during the dead zone between lunch and dinner. So maybe like 3 p.m., 4 p.m., it, it's a way to entice people. It's not that different than like a happy hour special. It's just, this is something that is uh, informed by data in real time. And it, it, it's it's recognizing the amount of demand versus the amount of capacity it has at any moment. Um, but yeah, basically ways to try and incentivize people to transact at times that are not busy. So like those certain slower periods by lowering price and then raising price and, you know, a peak Friday night, Saturday night, whatever it is. So how is this different than promotions? Like, I know what you're saying. I mean, for obviously, a lot of people come, let's say, for lunch at noon. A lot of places would like to see more sales, let's say, between two and four. But I'm curious, how, how is dynamic pricing going to be different than promotions? Uh, well, it depends on what kind of promotion we're talking about. I think if you're talking about something that somebody needs to see and know to redeem, like an offer that they received over email or something like that, then probably the biggest difference is that this is going to be a blanket application. It's not it's not a choice or it's not something that somebody is going to have to know to redeem in advance. Um, if we're talking about something that's just set and it's been on a restaurant menu when you show up at a certain time, like a happy hour special, then I think the difference is really going to be that it's not it's not going to be just a, a two version system of, you know, here's our price from four to six on Monday through Thursday. And then here's our price at any other time. It's going to be prices might change by every five minute interval or, or, or something like that. And, and they'll move on much more granular levels, I presume. Um, although I'm, I'm certainly not anybody who's working in this space and, and creating it at the moment. Um, th there are some interesting companies that are working on things like this now, but um, it might be that if something was $12.95 beforehand, it's going to be $13.15 or it might be $13.25. Uh, you know, the movements are probably going to be more granular and, and constantly changing. Interesting. Yeah, I'd be interested to see how uh, consumers are going to be responding to that and, and recognizing it. So that'd be quite interesting. You mentioned NFTs. Uh, is there an example of restaurants that are trying to incorporate NFTs successfully now? Yeah, you know, like um, Taco Bell and a few other brands have done promotions like this. I, I think at this point, it's likely uh, the strategy is probably just as much around drawing awareness and having something that, that that's attention-based and viral at the moment um, than it is them to actually expect to see a direct impact of the customers that are buying those NFTs. Uh, but the idea behind it, you know, I think that there are a couple of smaller fine dining establishments. Like I think there's one in, I believe it was New York that has uh, basically only allowed NFT holders to dine at their restaurant. And it's an exorbitantly priced restaurant. This NFT, I think, was very expensive too. But it's almost like 
it's like a digital country club membership in some ways. There's a lot more to it because of the, the many other things you can do digitally that you wouldn't be able to do with an old school type of membership. But similarly to that, it still is this idea around the NFT that you hold, it doesn't matter so much the appreciation of the artwork or, or you know whatever it's tied to. It's holding that is going to give you access and rights and, and things that make you special as a customer in some way. And, and I think that there probably is an interest among some kinds of customers or a willingness to pay to have that exclusivity. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So um curious, if you were to write a book about insights and analytics, what would you title the book and why? Ooh, you could tell by the way I was titling fake restaurant names that I'm not the maybe the best titler. Uh, but I would think it would have to be something to do with informing action, or that that's probably a title that's used by something else, but uh, I definitely believe that if anybody is speaking about insights and is looking to get the most out of insights, they need to recognize that insights in one way or another, good insights have to take data and tie it to what actions can be taken based on that information. So something around getting to action or the data that informs action, uh, something like that. <laughs> I'm sure it, it, it had been a tough challenge, but I think you're truly passionate about insights and, and delving into the way consumers think and feel. And I think uh, it's quite fascinating, and especially in an area that we can all relate to, right? Food and beverage. So I'm curious, in the world of insights and analytics, who would you love to have lunch with and why? I guess if you were to count... Malcolm Gladwell as a I, I, he's not an, an actual analytics or insights practitioner, but I, I like a lot of his writing that uses the analysis of others. But I like talking about cause and effect. And I think that he's a really interesting person that probably between the books that he's written and the other articles he's written has a lot of interesting things to point to of, of unexpected effects based on a, a certain cause or or the reason why something is the way that it is, is because of something you wouldn't expect and probably be a really fascinating conversation to learn more from him. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you for a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. And uh, you gave me some interesting thoughts that I hadn't thought about in terms of these NFTs as well as dynamic pricing. And I uh, also learned a little bit more about ghost kitchens and, and how they work. So I appreciate that. And I think this is a, an area we'll probably want to revisit at some point, have another conversation about what's happening trends-wise. And I think you're going to be following these for a while because I can see you truly have a passion for it. I'll try and get smarter on it myself. We, we ended up talking about some things that I'll admit I am not the expert on, but they're things that certainly interest me a lot too. So um, yeah, maybe I'll know more next time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of this thought-provoking, especially when it's related to something that we're all involved with daily, which is eating and drinking, right? And uh, I think uh, you know, COVID has changed a lot and lots of things have uh, evolved and, and new ways of delivering food and consuming and convenience is really changing very rapidly and very quickly. It's very interesting. I agree with you. I, I think it's one of the most interesting things out there. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>